Like one of my favorite ad campaigns was Intel Inside. No one actually goes by Intel, but when you went to Best Buy, it's I want a laptop. I want to make sure that Intel Inside logo on the laptop. Credibility. It. It's credibility. And that's what's happened in the market for us, which is um, I want to have a ribbon certified transaction. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast. And today we're back for episode two in a three-part series focused on expanding access to homeownership. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Shavel Shah, the co-founder and CEO of Ribbon. In this conversation, we talk about the power buyer business model, or as Shavel likes to say, the cash buyer model, and how this cash buyer model is enabling new families and new homeowners to access and unlock homeownership. I really hope you enjoy this episode and learn something about one of the most powerful new innovations in the home buying ecosystem that's come up on many podcasts with many types of guests in this season of the Housing News Podcast. Hope you enjoy the episode. HousingWire Annual The Remix is a virtual event bringing together highlights from 2022's conference in Scottsdale with exclusive new sessions just for virtual attendees. Join us October 20th for sessions where housing market leaders discuss their playbooks, how to execute bold growth strategies, and more. HousingWire Annual The Remix, coming to you online October 20th. Awesome, Cheval. Very nice to very nice to meet you. It's uh, it's not often I get to have a podcast guest that we haven't met yet, haven't had a conversation yet. So this is going to be a really fun and organic conversation. Thank you for making time. I hope you don't regret right, it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so let's. I want to just d- dig into the founding story behind Ribbon and like checking out your background. I mean, man, you have done a lot in fintech and prop tech and investing, and I'm like, I'm dying to kind of hear the inspiration and vision behind the decision to allocate your time to to launching and, and building Ribbon. Sure. sure. So I, you know, I've always. So first of all, I always wanted to start something. Um, I've always wanted to start something. I always wanted to start something in residential real estate for years and years and years. And part of the reason why is my family background is in real estate. Um, so my father had a real estate business. That was one. Um, two, my professional background has been a combination of finance and tech, um, mostly tech, but I kind of got rooted in investment banking, private equity, and VC, um, where I really learned how to understand businesses and break businesses down and think about them, and then spent a lot of years in tech. But really, kind of going back, the founding story for me um, on Ribbon goes back to 1967. Um, so it was way back. And so my parents were immigrants from India. And when they came to the States in 1967, they had you know, the, the classic immigrant dream. They had three things that they wanted to accomplish. They, they wanted to be able to find a job, uh, want to get education for the kids, and then they ultimately want to buy a house. And part of the reason why is that this American dream that people have, the cliche of it is not really a cliche, Coming from India, they were a very, very low socioeconomic family, constantly getting uprooted. And so the idea of stability meant everything for them. So they came to the States in 1967, spent 10 years saving every single penny, living in a 300-square-foot apartment in Oakland, California. And you fast forward 10 years later, they built some credit, they built enough for down payment, they went to go get a mortgage, and they got declined over and over and over again. And the part of the reason why is back in 1977, um, 
it was difficult, if not impossible, for a, a, a minority to be, uh, get a mortgage that was insured. So they couldn't get a mortgage. And so, so wait, they, so the mortgage insured. So it was on the, the MI side where the challenge came up? Yeah, so they couldn't get the mortgage. So my dad mentioned this to some of the colleagues. He was working multiple jobs. He mentioned this to one of the colleagues that he was working with, who in turn shared this with the leadership team. And about a week later, the company pooled $30,000 in cash together, and they bought my parents their house. And that was how my parents became homeowners. Um, they finally, you know, about seven years later, they were able to get a um, mortgage, get refied out, pay everyone back. And then my father started a social impact business. Um, back in the, in the 80s, where home prices were escalating, he was able to get a refi, get cash out, and he would put an ad in the paper and say, anyone else having a difficult challenge getting a house, I will buy you a home, you can move in the home, and you have the right to purchase a home whenever you want. And so this idea of purchase and reserve a home um, make it more affordable, give people time, keep people flexibility, move people out of renting into home ownership was a thing that I grew up with. Um, there was really not a name for it. It was just something he was doing for the local community. He focused and, on like the immigrant, immigrant community that was having like the same challenges that he had a decade earlier. Yeah, it was both the immigrant community and lower socioeconomic okay. communities. Um, and the communities that were typically renting and they were stuck in the rental spiral. And so at the peak, we have about 150 homes, um, 150 investments, 150 homes. All those homes were finally repurchased by individual families. And so it was like this amazing experience. Um, so I grew up in that model. There's not a lot of money to be made. Um, and so they, you know, I spent my, t- my, my early years ripping out carpeting, you know, painting walls. So I really got a chance to touch the actual physical asset and fell in love with it. Um, so then you fast forward to 2016, 2017. 2017 is when we started Ribbon. And there was, um, there was two things that we were looking at. One was we were looking at the homeownership gap. So if you look at home ownership by demographics, um, it's literally a rainbow. You look at black home ownership rates, you look at white, uh, white home ownership rates, and there's this huge divide in it. And the overall home ownership rates have come down um, over the last 20 or 30 years. And we said, something doesn't seem right. We're, as a, as a country, we're a much more industrialized nation, a richer nation, better education, better access. Why is home ownership rates dropping? And one of the things in 2017 that was um, piquing a lot of people's interest, especially early on, was the rise of the institutional investor. And institutional investors going up and buying single-family homes, converting them into rental properties. And we started researching that specific problem um, in places like North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, Nashville, Orlando, different secondary emerging markets. And the number of homes that were being purchased by institutional investors was skyrocketing. And what was happening is a very, very simple, um, it was a very simple flywheel. Every time an investor buys a home, they take, uh, they convert them into a rental, take it out of the housing stock, purchase stock, dries up supplies, prices go up, consumers can't afford. What do they do? They go back to the rental market, creates more rental investor demand. And we said, what's the one thing that these investors have that consumers don't have? Liquidity, access to cash. And so that created the, we pioneered uh, in this country, the idea of a cash back transaction home transaction for the everyday consumer. And so that's how that concept came to life, is that we were just looking at the home ownership gap, and then we looked at the institutional investor as a competitive threat to the consumer. And if it's a competitive threat to the consumer, it's a competitive threat to every single lender and every single real estate broker in the country. And so um, we decided to do two things. One, the fundamental product is a consumer product, cash back transactions, buy side, sell side. But we work in direct partnership with lenders and realtors. And so we don't go direct to consumer. 
Um, we think of ourselves as Shopify real estate. We empower the industry. We facilitate the market, technology, capital, people, resources. Um, and from January 2021 to May of this year, before the interest rates really took off, we grew 30x. And so it, all, it just went viral in all the markets that we're in. All right, I want so to come back to like the, the post-interest rate like skyrocketing yeah. and, and talk about like how the, the model plays well in different parts of the cycle. But so like coming back to the business model of ribbon, like, so what you're describing is what the industry has grown to categorize as a power buyer, right? Yeah. You know, um, when, when, when Mike Dopretti came out with that term, <laughs> uh, I cringed, I cringed. <laughs> and on one hand it was a benefit because a lot of companies formed after us. And one of the things, one of the education problems that we had is what are you guys? You're not a lender. Yep. You're not a real estate broker. You can be confused as a disruptor to the industry, not so much a, uh, a catalyst to, to helping transactions. Exactly. And so we had, so it was hard to kind of get a definition. Yeah. So the benefit of defining as power buyers, everyone said, okay, we now understand what this is and that's support of the business. Yep. Um, but the problem with the power buyer is the power buying is only one simple use case. Um, it's an application which is really for home buyers who need to compete in a competitive market. That's what power buying really, really is. And that's why you see a lot of companies who have indexed to be fully power buying, you've seen a huge decline in their business um, with interest rates because of affordability. Um, so power buying is a use case, but we think of this as um, we use capital, we use cash. Cash is not the product. Cash is just simply the mechanic. And then we build all these use cases on top of that. Power buying is one. Buy before you sell is another. Um, closing certainty for sellers is a third. Um, upgrading mortgages for lenders. Um, helping real estate brokerages build their businesses uh, on the heels of that. And so, no, it's just one application of it. Okay, so we understand like the the mission and vision of what you bring to the market. What was attractive about building this model from a financial perspective as you have to build a business and attract some of this cash, this capital that you, that you need to operate? You know, um, I, I tend to lean towards capital. Um, I think the financial markets, um, there's two, financial markets end up having two, um, two core problems to it. One is the way I think we underwrite risk. I think risk is broken. Um, the application of risk is really broken. Um, and the second is that most capital is used as an institutional investment vehicle, um, as liquidity. And so we said, what would happen if you use capital, you turn around, gave it to consumers, and you underwrote risk differently? And, you know, there's so much thinking around what is the risk profile of a consumer? We think of what's the risk profile of the home. And if you really understand the risk profile of a home, then it matters less of what the risk profile is on the consumer. You can make it more accessible, give more people an opportunity. Um, and so here's one really specific example. Lenders have an allergic reaction to owning homes, right? The concept of foreclosure, you want to get those homes off the books as fast as possible, and they will fire sell homes, auction homes off. I mean, if you look at the volumes of REO on books right now, it's, uh, it's at record lows. And uh, so I think that allergy got even worse after the, the long tail of 2009 to 2000 and whatever, 13, 14, before exactly. those books started getting clear. Exactly. Exactly. And so now they've they become accustomed yep. to that. And so taking more risk especially in these kinds of market climates is really, really difficult for us. We have no problem underwriting that risk because we think of it as if someone can't repurchase that home and they want to move on into their lives and do something else, we can just give that access to a different consumer. Eventually someone's going to be able to purchase that home. 
And so that's how we think about risk is really from a, uh, an asset level or a home level and not the consumer level. And so from a capital structure perspective for Ribbon, you have, I'm imagining you simultaneously needed equity to build a business, but access to credit to execute the capital strategy. Exactly. So we, um, our equity tranche today, our equity comes from VCs. Yep. Um, and so we and raised, a, an impressive list, uh, may I say? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, we're, we're, I will say it's an incredible, incredible investor group. Um, and we raised $130 million from the likes of Greylock, Bank Capital Ventures, NFX. Straight equity, 130? Straight, straight equity, okay. $130 million equity. And then we've got um, credit lines you know, that run north of a billion dollars. But because of our model, we don't hold homes for a long period of time. Yep. Right? We're not 30 years long. And so we are operating typically in two, three, four-month increments. So we're able to recycle the capital three, four, five times a year. So a billion-dollar credit line will actually give you close to four to five billion dollars of purchasing power. Okay, so I guess we should go deeper into the power buyer model then. So we understand the uh, maybe we, maybe we won't use the cringeworthy term. Do you have a better Do you have a better term for how you like to consider ribbon? You know, I like I like um, creating certainty for the home transaction. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I like cool. closing certainty and certainty in general. Or cashback transactions. Okay, so we use cashback transactions. Cash so the cashback transaction, like yeah. we, we get the transaction. We get how the, the home is purchased and how the consumer or the homeowner is enabled through a more powerful offer structure of cash. So what happens in month three and four? How does the, I, I'm assuming you move towards some type of refinance or mortgage transaction that releases the cash? Yeah, so... Yeah, so I could, I'll walk through it. It's, okay. it's actually quite interesting. I don't know if anyone's really broken down the model. So let's say you enable 100 consumers. For every 100 consumers that we enable, um, home buyers, 75 to 80 of those consumers secure their mortgage by the closing date. So what's happening is the seller and the buyer and both realtors want to make sure that there is protection. It's effective. We don't, yeah. we, we don't use the word insurance. We're not an insurer, but it's assurance. So we say we will stand in if for any reason something goes wrong. We will step in and we will purchase the home on behalf of the set of the buyer at the exact same terms. Buyer then can purchase the home back from us the exact same terms whenever they feel like when it. When they secure financing. One month, two months, or three months. Exactly. What if it's, what if it's 10 years? Like, is that a- so, we, so typically it's within six months. Yeah. Um, what we found is that within six months, people have either have been able to secure their financing or they've chosen not to purchase the home. So of the 100 families that we enable, 80 of them will secure the mortgage. And that's why the partnership with the lenders is so powerful, because the intent is actually to close on time. Um, and so we're very, very aligned from that perspective. For the 20 that we step in to buy, it's for one of a couple of reasons. One, home sale contingency. They have a home on the market, hasn't sold yet, they can't get two mortgages. Um, another is that there may be a delay in the processing. Third is the consumer hasn't gotten their documents in. Fourth is consumer wants to wait an extra one or two months because they want to either get more for down payment, get a different mortgage product, and so they want to wait it out a little bit. Those are the 20, 25% cases where we step in and buy. Of those, 80 to 90% of those families will purchase the home back from us under the same terms within probably three to four months. So... That's, that's how the model works. And so, so you end up out of that 100 transactions having like between two and four homes that, that don't close and you don't get liquidity on at some point. And like, how do, where do you go from there? So typically there, um, if, the, if the family wants to stay in the home, um, but they don't want to purchase the home, then we'll transfer the home. Someone who can actually provide a 30-year rental for them or long-term rental. But most times they want to move on. 
at which point we put the house back in the market, or we will um, we're, we're be launching a program where all the all the lenders and agents on the platform will be able to access those homes. So if they have a buyer who's interested in buying, we can provide that to another consumer. Okay, so the does the consumer most often learn about ribbon or the the certainty of a cash transaction from the agent or from an originator or like, could it like, where, like where, where do they learn about ribbon? Since you did like you you introduced the model as like relatively B2B, not, you're not a consumer play. Yeah. So this has been the hardest part uh, to be totally frank. And when you're direct to consumer, it's easy, right? You have consumer messaging, you have consumer marketing. Um, it's super got $130 million to buy a Super Bowl ad. You can buy Super Bowl ads all day long. You can run TV ads all day long. Um, but it's competitive to the ecosystem, right? Yeah. So it's not a path that we want to take. Um, we go through three routes of, of education. One is we go through the, um, the loan originators, right? So we go work with the lenders. We educate the lenders. We give the lenders a bunch of training, a bunch of collateral. They, in turn, can educate the borrower. We also uh, educate the real estate brokerage house and the individual agents, and then we also run air campaigns, which is consumer campaigns. Okay. So think of um, like one of my favorite ad campaigns was Intel Inside. No one actually goes buys Intel, but when you went to Best Buy, it's I want a laptop. I want to make sure that Intel Inside logo on the laptop. Credibility. It. It's credibility. And that's what's happened in the market for us, which is um, I want to have a ribbon certified transaction. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what the market conditions look like and how that switched a little bit. But so we have three layers of marketing that we run through consumer marketing to support the agents, lenders, and then direct marketing to lenders and agents. Interesting. So, okay. So like, that's a, that's a great, uh, explanation of the consumer marketing strategy Intel inside. So like, um, if you are ever to do a Super Bowl ad or radio ads, um, you are, uh, you are trying to provide credibility to support the agents and originators who are, who are submitting a ribbon certified of, of sorts offer letter. Like, is that like come through? Like, I mean, are they actually like, how, how is the transaction represented in a, in an offer letter? I mean, I'm thinking back to, you know, earlier this year when everyone got 20 offers, like, like is the ribbon, like offer on purple paper or something? Like how did, like, how, how do you sell that? You like sell that? Intel inside, um, uh, structure. So the, 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 so it's actually a really good point. And we, so this is the first time we've mentioned this, um, publicly, the offer letter is the product. The offer is the product. So what's happened is that the offer is fully designed. It's branded. It gives clear instructions on exactly what's going to happen, the benefits to the seller, listing everyone. And that letter has become the viral letter. So we don't need cover letters with pics of our kids anymore and uh, saying... <laughs> exactly. Because the, the, whole, the whole problem is that if you are sitting in an FHA or a VA or a low-level conventional, yep. um, one or two things will happen. In a competitive market, your offer won't even be considered. Right, so this moves it straight to the top of the stack, or there's no other offers on the table. And because you have an FHA or VA, the seller is going to add a bunch of other criteria to the transaction. Higher EMD, right? more money in. I just want to be sure because of the perception of the VA and the FHA. But for us, the offer letter um, states all the key criteria. It's automatically generated, and it gets sent out to those side. And so that's the actual product. And okay. because we're open, because we're open... Eight, we have every day could be a Remax agent on one side and a Keller Williams agent on the other side. But because we don't have in-house services or in-house answers, we're not competitive. If a Remax agent submits an offer letter to a Keller Williams listing agent, that Keller Williams listing agent comes, signs up for ribbon, 
and they go out and make offers for their other clients who are looking to buy homes. Okay. So in the 80% of scenarios where the product is truly the offer letter and financing is secure before the home closes, how do you get paid? What is the revenue model for that? So we, we charge a 1% fee. Um, so 1% fee to enable the transaction. And if we step in to purchase, we also collect the closing costs. Okay. And at that point, then it's really, we have, think of almost like Airbnb. So once they move into their home, they just pay a short-term rent and it's pro rata for the number of days that they're renting until they secure their mortgage. Once they secure the mortgage, the rental contract automatically ends and they are now homeowners. So is that 1% fee like usually get allocated to the consumer. So in a traditional 6% scenario, they're paying 7% or does the, the set, the, the buyer's agent come take, take it out of their, their, their cut. Or like, how does that like economically flow? You know, in the beginning, this was a painful process for us because it depends. Every single transaction is a snowflake, right? It's a different buyer, different seller, different needs, different days on market, yep. different market climate. And so we decided to not fix the payment structure. So we created a model where anyone in the transaction can pay for it. They can split the fee. One side can pay all of it. Um, in a deep seller market, the buy side is going to pay that fee typically, right? Because they have they they don't have the leverage. So that's usually coming from the lender who will pay the fee, or the buyer will pay the fee. In today's climate, we're seeing is more and more times the seller and the listing agent are paying the ribbon fee, because when you have ten offers on the table, if one falls through as a seller, I can put the house back in the market at ten more offers. Today, if you have a non-competitive situation and a contract falls through, and right now 15% contracts are falling through, it may be another 45 days before you get another offer. So I need to make sure as a seller that that offer is going to close. So, so I mean, this is an interesting product that kind of sits at the intersection of, of real estate and, and housing finance. Yes. And uh, with the ability for any party in the transaction to cover the cost, like, is there a... Like it, in a world where like this, like the DOJ is successful, like going after a certain part of the commission structure, our managing editor, Tracy Bell, will be much more attuned to talking about this than, than I am. But like, is there a, is there a regulatory path that would um, tighten who can actually pay the, 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 the ribbon cut of the, the fee? Or you, you kind of sit outside of that kind of traditional commission. Yeah, we sit outside of the commission. So the the DOJ, at least the discussions that are happening at the DOJ on that on the commission structures, would have no impact to us. Yeah. A strong partner in enterprise loan quality ensures lender and consumer protection during a market shift. Hi, this is Nicole Booth, Chief Marketing Officer with QC Ally, the official enterprise loan quality partner of Housing Wire News with today's Power of Partnerships Minute. We've all heard about a potential increase in fraud, loan default, and repurchase. A market shift presents an opportunity for lenders to review internal QC processes, and loan quality assurance checks assist with lower defect rates and minimizes repurchase risks. A partnership between technology with human guidance allows trained QC experts to accurately identify risks, monitor the ever-changing regulatory environment, and engage technology to support efficiency and speed. Partnering with an enterprise loan quality company like QC Ally can improve loan quality and drive change within the organization. Learn more at QCAlly.com. That's today's Power of Partnerships Minute. All right, well, let's, let's 
That's good for you. <laughs> yeah, we looked into that very clear, closely, but no, no impact to us. All right, nice. So as you think about, um, well, actually, I want to come back to the, one of your earlier comments about kind of the 30x growth from 17 to, to 2021 and like the, the, the shift in market dynamic that that is a that was a big topic at our housing wire annual event as we have players across the industry that are looking at um, the mortgage side volume down significantly big impact from drop off and refi, but we're also seeing purchase slow down um, vendors that are dealing with the kind of re- repercussions of um, volume based revenue models, um, which, you know, makes them sticky, but uh, you know, can, can impact a, a venture backed P and L. Uh, so the industry is optimistic and ready for the other side of this, um, of this chasm that we're, we're crossing right now, but how's that impacting the, the cash backed buyer market? You know, um, so I think everyone in the space, um, really kind of June 1st, you really started to see it start to the market in June 1st. I, everyone's businesses were off. Um, you know, like to your point, you know, our growth was from January 2021 to May of 2022 of 30X. It was we were probably the fastest growing comp, uh, company in the country. Um, and then all of a sudden, June, July, when the rates are going up, um, because everyone is so focused on the power buying use case that that's what the market knew. And what happens with lenders and real estate agents, they get trained like this is what this product does. But if we peel it back a little bit, um, ultimately the reason why these power buying solutions or cash solutions were, were effective is because of certainty of close. Ultimately the certainty of close, right? The sellers accepting cash because they want to minimize the contingencies. And so for us, the big shift now is, um, we kind of reset on headcount. Um, we're making a bunch of little edits to the model. And the key is supporting the listing agent. So for the last three years, all the focus has been on the buy side. And the listing agent really hasn't had a lot of time and attention from innovators. And so we're spending a lot of time working with listing agents. So what happens, buying agent and buyer demand started to shorten come June 1st. And listing agent and seller's demand started to come up. Yeah, we saw an inventory uptick. And so the inventory uptick came to outside. So we started to be able to work directly with listing agents. So now listing agents are creating what they call cash-backed listings powered by ribbon. Okay, hold on, hold on. Cash-backed listings powered by ribbon. I don't, I don't understand. Go, more, so go deeper. The, so, and this is happening organically. Listing agents are calling. Um, we are accepting offers, and we are going to prioritize offers that are backed by ribbon. So what happens is, and this is a hard thing from marketing. You had asked about marketing. Um, you don't know. No one knows if a given buying agent or a buyer is actually in the market making an offer until that offer is received by a listing agent. The listing agent knows. And so working with a listing agent, what happens is they say, here's four buying agents with four buyers who've actually came in to see showings. These two have shown interest. Can you upgrade them to a cash offer? And they will promote it out to the buy side. And so um, I would say probably half the transactions we're doing today are actually coming from the listing side versus like 3%. So it's completely shifted the mix. So the, and it's a go-to-market strategy in itself. It's like your, your listing agents are teaching the rest of the community about exactly. the cash offer optionality. Exactly. Exactly. And they're paying the fee. Yep. So they're saying it's literally going to cost you nothing. Well, so hold on. So, so the listing agent's paying the fee in that scenario? Or the seller. Oh, the selling. Oh, okay. That's even a better go-to-market strategy. So seller pays the <laughs> fee. They come in, they discover ribbon, they hear about ribbon. Uh, and most of the times in the markets when they've done a ribbon transaction in the past, uh-huh. so they know who we are. And so they will come, they'll bring ribbon into the transaction from the listing side. 
sell it to the seller first. So this is great. Yes. Once I want to get an offer, I want to make sure it closes no matter what, um, because I have to buy a new home and they then take it to the buy side, but they agree up front. The seller agrees up front that we're going to pay the 1% fee. And so it's free to the buyer. So that's how we've literally in the last four to six weeks turned ribbon to be a completely free product to buyers. How does, um, on the agent adoption side, do you need to kind of sell at the enterprise level? Like if you want to bring on a large brand or franchise, do you have to go like pound the corporate table or can you go agent direct and like kind of go from the feet on the street? You know, in 2017, 2018, pretty much going into 2019, it was working directly with the real estate agents. Um, we couldn't get meetings with the brokerages. Um, they didn't know who we were. And so we just worked with individual agents. And then individual agents ran transactions. Those became case studies, took it back to their teams. Then the teams started adopting. Then the teams took it to the broker owners. And so now 100% of all of our brokerage partnerships are inbound interest. So we don't do any outbound. Um, and we have three lev- levels of, of partnership with the real estate side. Um, one is at the corporate level. Um, the second is at the franchise level. And the third is at the team and individual um, agent level. Like if you really want to nail, if you really want to nail support for the ecosystem, you have to invest at all layers. You have to. Because otherwise what ends up happening at some point, they need to control the experience. They need to standardize and so if they can say, hey, we will adopt Ribbon, we'll do a proper training, we'll see how it works with our systems, then it becomes more standardized, it becomes more effective, and it gets more built into their workflows. Okay. So coming back to the impact of the rapid rise in interest rates, it, if I'm understanding correctly, it's the, the impact on interest rates on volume, which is the bigger impact on the, the cash buyer market, not so much interest rate exposure that, that you have through your capital structure. Right. Yeah, we get a little bit of a very, very small piece of our margin profile is the actual rent. We try not to make a lot of money on rent. Like we try to want to just use that to kind of cover costs. But that that adjusts based on what our cost of capital is. And because we're cycling these situations so frequently, we don't sit in these situations where we're holding a home for two years or three years um, at a fixed rental rate, but with changing uh, interest rates on the back end. Interesting. Okay, so it's more for volume. I'm learning a lot yeah. from this conversation. Yeah, but it's, it's literally a, a volume. It's more of a volume thing. Um, and but here's why I think as a startup, why it's a little bit different for us. If you are um, a big national brand and you've pretty much saturated the market, right? So take something like Compass, big brand, big market, um, number one brokerage in the country. Fluctuations on volume is really going to influence them. For us, uh, I will tell our team, we are little amoebas on the bottom of the seafloor. There is so much volume above and beyond us that we are actually capturing that even if someone scooped out a, a little bit of water from the top of the sea, you wouldn't have no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I mean, we heard that at, at housing wire annual, we had the lender on stage that uh, describes him, himself as smedium. Um, they're, they're, uh, he wouldn't want to be the, the kahuna in the room right yes. now. Cause one, it's hard to move the needle on growth. And two, it's, it's hard to rectify cost, harder to rectify cost structure and being that amoeba or smedium, um, is not a bad place not to be place. as <laughs> the market changes. Yeah. You know, a lot of companies really, really scaled, scaled headcount to significant numbers and at really the end of 2021, Kind of coming out of the buying season 2021, prepping for 2022. And yes, I think they had a, a very significant hit. I think for us, smaller team, because 
our distribution is built in through the ecosystem, right? We don't need to have a massive sales team. We don't need to have a massive distribution team. And the transaction is super simple, right? It's a three-step process. It's super simple to process. Um, so, yeah, for us, it's more around open markets, penetrate markets deeper. And our market strategy is very simple. We launch markets directly in partnership with our partners. So if we're working with a lender partner and they say, you have to be, we need you to be in, um, in Atlanta. Within a couple of weeks, we'll be in Atlanta. Um, they then take us out into market. The product just grows virally in the market. And then we open more markets with our partners. Really? Okay. So like wrapping up the conversation and like kind of going to ask you to like zoom up to like the, the board level perspective, what's the biggest challenge you have over the next 12 months? Like what is the, what is the challenge that you have to tackle, whether it's market related or business model related or awareness related? I'm curious of like where your effort goes as we look forward to 23. You know, I think the, um, there's, there's actually three, three specific ones. One is on the capital side. Um, we pretty much assume the capital markets are shut down um, from a venture perspective. And so because we use equity to purchase homes for consumers, part of our equity gets allocated. So as you grow, you're using cash. Um, so one is um, really thinking about new alternative ways to finance the equity. Um, and then we have a couple of different options that have nothing to do with VCs and private equity. Um, so that's one. That's like a big one for us. I mean, it feels like a place that traditional correspondent lenders would play. So there's a, there's the, the lender partners are actually great potential partners for this. Um, but there are other potential partners. Um, and the reason why is people are, people are interested in 30 year long owning equity 30 year long. They don't love the next six to 12 months, but people who have a long-term view say, we love the long-term horizon. It's still, we are still operating in a low inventory environment. Um, we will be in that place for a long time. That's a structural problem. And so instead of thinking about venture capital to finance operating business, how do you think about investors to finance the equity in the real estate transaction? That's one. So, yeah, I mean, you have to go outside of traditional fund structures and look at like long-term institutional um, insurance, sovereign wealth. Exactly. Um, And so now we have the operating history and we have portfolio, we have the history, we have the yield curve. So it's, it's an easier conversation to have today than it was two years ago. And they're all seeking um, places where they can get healthy yield, long, you know, long-term play, and where we have 75,000 agents and loan officers on our platform that represent 5% of all U.S. transactions. So they see this as an access point to the purchase market. Um, so that's one. The second one is diversifying the product suite. So one of the mistakes that I made back in 2000 and kind of 2020, coming out of the pandemic, was I shifted the model to be really geared towards the power, power buying use case. Um, and instead, what I should have done is that power buying is an application. Let's just create another SKU. So now we're creating a marketplace of SKUs that represent different use cases. So that's the second one, which is really around product to meet the distribution. Um, and then the third one is really around people. Um, it's talent. And uh, you know, I, I, what I tell the, tell the board is I started this company to be a founder and I woke up being a CEO, and they're two totally different jobs. And so where I need to do a better job, I think, personally, is just keep on focusing on building out the leadership team um, with more industry expertise, more industry expertise. Because we're so long in the industry, in the ecosystem, 
So those are three parts. Um, it's um, product vision, capital to make sure resource well, and the third is making sure that we have exceptional leadership talent in every single spot that has domain expertise. Yeah, that's a um, that's that's like a, a vulnerable thing to share to talk about building a, a C-suite leadership team. I think you talk about everyone talks about talent in this industry all the time, but it's usually about sales or execution or ops or tech, not necessarily how you um, supplement a executive team that can, uh, you know, take it to the next level. Yeah, it's, I agree. I think a lot of times people think about the functional orgs in a company, but it's leadership um, and leadership that has a combination of a couple of things. One is just the incredible will of surviving and living prosperously through chaos, which is what startup world looks like, choose domain expertise um, and being builders. Sometimes there are people who come from industry that are coming from larger organizations that are not a perfect match. Um, you know, we want people who've actually had to go through the burn. Um, they've had to go through ups, they've had to go through downs, and they find their way back is really the types of leaders that we want. I mean, it's very hard to take an executive or an entry-level team member out of a um, Fortune 500 enterprise-type environment and teach them how to operate in a, a scrappy, growth-oriented organization. That's a, uh, I mean, at, even in like our smaller organization, I've quickly learned that like I don't, we don't need team members that are Fortune 500 folks. It's a different mentality. It's a different mentality. Exactly, um, because there's there's building, yep. and then there's stabilizing. Maintaining, maintaining, protecting, like that's the stuff that doesn't get you 30x growth in four exactly. years. Yeah, just being nimble, right? just constantly editing, constantly changing, and having the humility to say, yeah, we tried this, and that was my intellectual idea, but it didn't work. So I'm going to change it tomorrow. And, and that, that's a different mindset. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about the leadership team. Um, and I think that the, most, the, the highest performing team of any company has to be the leadership team. Because they are the models. They will model behaviors for the rest of the org. And it, all it takes is one or two gaps in leadership to bring everything down. Yeah, I, I love like thinking of the leadership team as a team. I think a trap that a lot of organizations fall into is that you think of your team as the, the people that directly report to you, which isn't not necessarily the team that you're on and like the executive team has to think of themselves like the team you are on is the executive team. You're not the, the operations team just cause you're COO you're on the executive team. And like, I, I love that the highest performing team has to be the C-suite has to be the executive team. Exactly. Yeah. We, it's actually an interview question. I ask, I uh, actually hope those who are candidates are not hearing this, but I always <laughs> ask the question, which is who's your first team. I mean, is it the worst thing if you attract a great executive <laughs> from this podcast? No, I, you know, but it, no, I mean, we, well, I don't want, we don't, we don't ever want to recruit out of the industry because they're all yeah. partners. Um, but we always, I always ask one question, which is who's the first team. And if you are a manager, your first team has to be your cross-functional manager exactly. at a manager level, senior manager, director, VP, C-suite. It's your cross-functional peers. That's your first team. You see managers lose effectiveness so quickly when they don't communicate cross organization yes. and like you can go in a hole and feel ultra productive when you're talking to your team members, your direct reports every, every day. And like, you have this like great rapport inside of your division, but like, if you're not going cross organizationally, there's no way you can do, like do the innovation and iteration that, that it takes to you know build a category, which is essentially right. what you're doing at ribbon. Exactly. You know, I think the thing that we, um, the hardest part about 
building and the space is that most people who've been out of tech think of SaaS products, and those are pretty simple businesses. Like actually, after running Ribbon, when people talk about building a photo sharing app, I'm like, that's such a simple business, right? It's a very few people, very few functions. It's product-led, everything's product-led. Yeah. This is real estate, and so you need people. It's a people transaction at the end of the day, and there's a lot of little steps along the way. And so operational excellence is everything. It's interesting to see how technologies evolve. Like the like the tech ecosystem that I would have defined ten years ago was like vertical SaaS, and vertical SaaS is incredibly important, like an yes. incredibly important part of enabling commerce and helping folks be more tech centered, and they don't have the resources to build on their own. What we're seeing now, and I think where this conversation is going, is like tech and innovation as an industry participant, not as a, like, uh, you know, just a, a, you know, a monthly subscription fee and a vertical SaaS product, exactly. but you're still a partner in B2B. So it's like a, it's a unique thing that hasn't necessarily been like defined or like broadly shared across different, uh, verticals, but we're starting to see it pop here in the housing world. You know, it's, um, w- um, with other founders in the space, I ask them, what's the role of technology? Cause for some, some, some of the founders that come from real estate, some have come from tech and every one of the tech founders talk about tech is the disruptive layer. You know, we're going to do everything through tech. And tech has a place. It's better for underwriting. It's better for intelligence layers, better for analytics. It's great for workflow tools. Um, but it's different. It's in real estate. It's an enabling component. Uh, it's not the thing. It's there to enable. And ultimately to enable what exists in the market today, which is a very complex transaction, and a very diverse group of people. It takes 12 people to close one home transaction. Software is about building stronger, deeper communication and information flow. That's the value of technology. Um, If it can't deliver that to enable people, it doesn't have a lot of value. Excellent. Thank you for this. Uh, I mean, I was going to say 101, but this is really like, I feel like I just got a master's level education on, on cash transactions. I love it. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.